This podcast is brought to you by Whites Ferry Road Church. For more information, please visit WFRChurch.org. If y'all would bow with me, we'll, start, we'll begin with a prayer. Father God, we come to you in prayer. We thank you so much uh, for today, God. We thank you for loving us despite the fact that we are sinners, Father, and that we have rebelled against you, Father. We thank you for for not leaving us as orphans when, when your son was resurrected and ascended back into heaven, Father. We thank you for leaving us your, your Holy Spirit, Father, sending us the Holy Spirit, Father, to dwell in our hearts so that he could guide us into all truth, Father. We pray tonight that we will learn more about uh, this third person of, of the triune God that, that, that you are, Father, and that, uh, and that we will be able to apply it to our lives, Father, and be able to experience a great power, Father, um, living out the Christian life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, a few years ago, I was in Jamaica on a mission trip. I know it sounds odd to be in Jamaica on a mission trip, right? It was, it was really a sacrifice. Um, but we didn't go to the, the nice part of Jamaica. We went to a, a very rural, impoverished part of, of the island. And, um, and we had a, we would knock doors. This is, this is when I was in college at, at Harding. And, uh. And we would knock doors during the daytime, and at night we would have we'd invite everybody to the gospel meeting, and then that we'd have different local preachers would come in and, and would preach, and then uh, we would we sang every night, and we did you know skits and whatnot. We entertained the children, and and just really had a good time there. And it was a a, a great experience for me. It was my first mission trip that I ever went on, and and I remember the most interesting thing happened there. What one night. This man from Jamaica, this this gospel preacher from Jamaica, uh, laid out one of the best sermons I'd heard in a long time. And he had told the story of Jesus and his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and talked about sin and forgiveness of sins and and baptism and and repentance and all that all that all that we do, right? And uh, and so at the end of the service, a man walks down front to get baptized, and uh, he said he wanted to put his faith in Jesus and wanted to be baptized. And we all waited, and we waited, and we waited, and we waited, and nothing happened. And so they came out, and they dismissed the crowd, and so, we're, but it, so the guy never got baptized. And, and we were all a little confused. All the students were confused, so we asked our, I, I remember we, we all were huddled around our, our leader, who was one of the, uh, I think he was a professor at, at, at Harding. And we asked him, we said, why, why did you not baptize, or why did they not baptize this guy that came out? What happened? What was the story? And he said, well... He said um, that he didn't want to worship in truth and in spirit. And I, I've heard, has anyone ever heard that phrase before, used before, that we got to worship in truth and in spirit? He said he didn't want to worship in truth and in spirit. And, um, and I was a little taken back by that. I didn't, I didn't exactly know what he meant. I'd heard that term before. I knew the scripture, and I'd heard the term in the, in the church before used quite a bit uh, to talk about the way we worship God in the Sunday morning assembly, and there's a right way to do it, as I was taught, and a wrong way to do it, and uh, apparently this guy was doing it the wrong way, and, and he was going to, because he, he didn't want to commit to this local church, he said he was going to go back to his church, and, uh, and he was going to worship there, and at, at this particular church, uh, the, the Bible professor told us that they spoke in tongues, and, um, and, I, and it, just, it, it just it bothered me. It bothered me that they wouldn't baptize this man because of that. And I asked, I asked the, the guy, I said, well, well, I thought that we didn't believe in speaking in tongues. 
And he said, well, we don't. And I was like, well, then how is he doing it? And he started stuttering. He said, well, he's not. I said, yeah, but you said he's going to a church where they speak in tongues, but you said we don't believe in speaking in tongues, so how's he speak, how are they speaking in tongues? And, uh, and, and my point was, was that, hey, look, whether you, whatever you believe on tongue speaking is irrelevant, but this is not a prerequisite to the gospel, okay, to obedience to the gospel. And I thought about this verse that he used, this idea of worshiping in truth and in spirit. And, you know, I've always heard this in the church used to describe something that I don't think it's meant to describe. It's used to say that you have to have your, your worship service on Sunday morning has to be done in the right way without error. And if you're doing this, then you're worshiping in truth and in spirit. But I want to read you this whole context of, the, of this idea of worshiping the Father in truth and the spirit. And, and uh, I want to dissect it a little bit because I think it goes right into what we're talking about with the idea of the Holy Spirit. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water... Oh, I'm sorry. I should tell you that. John 4. This is in John 4, verse 7. This is the whole story of the woman at the well. John 4, 7. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews didn't associate with, with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well to, and drank from it himself, as, as did his sons and all of his livestock? Jesus answered, Whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst again. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, let me ask you a question here. What do you think... Well, let me read this next verse, and then I'll ask you. So the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. What do you think this woman is thinking about? What kind of water do you think she's thinking about? Yeah, H2O. Because she's, she's, she's asking Jesus, you're, ta- you're telling me that there's some kind of water I can get it. If I drink it, I'll never thirst again. And you're telling me that I, that, that I won't have to keep coming back here. And I can just imagine you know, when, I, when, I, when we were in Haiti, I watched the, the girls would carry the buckets full of water on their, on their head. And they would walk all the way uphill with this big bucket, of, this five-gallon bucket of water filled with water on their head. And they would walk all, all the way home from, the, from where they got the water from to, uh, to back to their house. And I can't imagine what an offer this would be if you thought that you could actually receive some type of water where you wouldn't have to keep coming back to the same place to draw the water from. And he says, she would get you, come back to this well, she would get her water, she'd go home, and she'd wash her dishes, you know, she'd drink it, they'd bathe in it, whatever they did, all the things you do with water. And then when it got low, what would she do? She'd go back again. And she'd fill it up with water. And she'd go back home, and she'd take that water home, and then she'd do this routine her entire life, was to go back to this place, to go to a place to get this water so that she could survive, so that she could live. And Jesus is telling her, look, I've got some water that if you drink, you will never thirst again. So she's thinking he must be talking about physical water, and I won't have to come back to this physical place to get it again. So she said, give me some of that. 
And Jesus replied to her, he said, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man that you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So in other words, Jesus is reading her mail here. He's telling her about her life, which probably was kind of weird, right? She's sitting there. Someone te- If I've never met you and you start telling me about myself, I'm, I, of course, now we have Google. I'm going to assume you're, you, you Googled me or something and found that information on me. Back then, I mean, this, I'm sure this scared her. She said, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Now, the reason why she said that was because he just read her mail and told her her life story, basically. Our ans- and now, 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 with this being said, when she says that she sees he's a prophet, she, then she comes out with this question that is seems to be out of out of the out of context of, of what we're what we're reading here, but it's actually not out of context at all. She asks him a question that she needs an answer to. She says, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. She, I'm sure she pointed to the mountain. But you Jews claim that the place of worship is in Jerusalem. Where do you worship at? That's what she wants to know. Where, where do we worship at? Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will neither worship the Father on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In other words, listen, I know you're asking me where, where does worship take place. And, that's, and she's asking, do, we need, do I need to go to Jerusalem or am I fine doing it here on the mountain? Jesus said, let me tell you something. He said, the time is coming. In fact, it's now come that you will neither worship the Father on that mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Now, if you remember this whole thing of what we've been talking about, the main purpose of the Holy Spirit is to what? Lead us in the truth. He's saying a time is coming, in fact, has now come when you will need to worship the Father on this mountain, nor in Jerusalem. It's not going to take place in a place anymore. The Father wants people to worship him in a spirit and truth. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in the spirit, capital S, and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I am the one speaking to you. I am he. So when Jesus is, is, is giving this vision of this living water that is, that is here, that's coming, that's, that, 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 that the, the true believers are going to, when they drink it, it's going to be a spring inside them welling up to eternal life. And this is exactly what the Holy Spirit is. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he's living inside of us. He's welling up to eternal life. It's flowing out of us. And, and, and it's, it's leading us into this idea of truth and in spirit. And this is how the Father wants us to worship him. Um, if, you, if you remember that, 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 that uh, your spiritual act of worship, let me, let me turn there real quick. Where's that at? Hebrews, I think it's in Hebrews 12. No, it's not. Where am I going here? I lost my script. I didn't have this written down, but I wanted to read it real quick. 
I'll find it in a second here. The point is, is that when we're, when we're worshiping the Father, it is an idea that we are connecting somehow with, this, with, 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 with understanding reality for the way that it really is. And if you remember what I, the way I defined truth, I think last week was, was truth was when our thoughts match reality. I shouldn't say equal, match. Match reality. So when our thoughts match reality, the relationship between them is, is called truth. And the Father wants us to worship Him in, in the Spirit, the capital S, and truth. And in John 17, it says that we're sanctified by the truth. In John 14 through 16, it says when the Spirit comes, He will guide us into all truth. So it's this revelation coming from God that is to lead us into this. So tonight what I want to talk about is the relationship between the Holy Spirit and... Because if you think about this, when we talk about knowledge and truth, where does that occur at in, in you? Huh? With what? Okay, re, where does reason occur at? Yeah, no, okay, where do you... Where does your, in your brain. Yeah, well, not in your brain. In your mind. In your mind. So I want you to think about this, the correlation between the spirit and our, and our mind. Because what I, what I want to submit to you tonight is that there is a direct correlation between the renewal of the mind and the indwellment of the Holy Spirit. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll start there in verse 10. And we're going to do a lot of... I like to read the full context. So we're actually going to read about two chapters here. And we'll go through it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll start in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, one another so, that, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. One says that I follow Paul, another says I follow Apollos, another says I follow Cephas, another says I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you except for Pippus and Gaius so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the house of uh, Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Now, I used to read this verse, and I thought that, that, that God was maybe against wisdom, and he didn't want us coming with these yeah, he just he just like look. You get to if you get I don't, I don't get into these deep discussions because we don't want the cross to be emptied of its power. But I, I want you to notice there's a word there before wisdom that is imperative if we're going to understand this passage in verse 17. He says, "I did, I came to preach the gospel not with words of human wisdom. It's just not a rejection of wisdom. It's a rejection of human wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. What is human wisdom?" Human wisdom is the way that we package things, the way we correlate things, the way that we, we, we are marketers and we're planners and we do things. Nothing's wrong with that. But what he's saying is it's not about how you package it. It's about the power of the gospel. It's not about how we package the gospel. It is about the gospel itself. For the message of the cross 
And to be honest with you, right, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. You ever try to share it with somebody and, just, and you're like, they just didn't get it. And you're like, I, got, I, I met with a guy today who's uh, in jail and um, he's a, um, an atheist. I've known him for a while. He's a, a devout atheist. And, uh, and he's, he literally is, is ruining his life and I hope he gets out of it. But uh, the guy just didn't understand what I was saying. He just, it just, I mean, look at the look in his eye. And we did have a little moment there where I thought I could see the spirit was working on him and convicted him. But when you start talking about, like, I was talking about brokenness to him. And I know he's in prison now with a bunch of hardened criminals. And, and so that's the last place you want to be broken, right? I mean, he's got to protect himself. And I said, I know you're in this place right now where you're um, uh, around criminals and you're probably having to portray yourself as, 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 as hard to protect yourself, but I would just ask you to, to just, just exist in your brokenness for a little bit. Like, why don't you just, like, when you get to yourself, just allow yourself to be broken. Allow yourself, because he said, well, you know, Nietzsche always said that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And that's not always true, actually. You can actually get really sick and not be stronger and still survive, right? Yeah, true. And that's relative, I guess. But I said, I, but, but to, to the idea of becoming less, the idea of becoming vulnerable was so foreign to him. And if you think about the message of the cross, it is a message of vulnerability because it's God Almighty becoming vulnerable and actually, actually hum, humiliating himself for his creation. And it does seem to be foolish for those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, which would be us, it is is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Now remember what he's talking about here. He's not talking about intellectual arguments, and he's not talking about correct philosophies. He's talking about the philosophies of this age, human philosophies, not godly philosophies. Has not God made the uh, uh, foolishness the wisdom of what? The world. For since in the wisdom of God, see, now we have a correlation, now we have a distinction here between the wisdom of the world. Now he's juxtaposing that to the wisdom of God. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know God. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to those who believed. The Jews demand miraculous signs and the Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the, wis and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So that no one may boast before him. This is the paradox of the entire faith that we are a part of. That less is more. That the weak are strong. That, that God humiliates himself and becomes the creation. That the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's the great paradox of the Christian faith. And a paradox is a perceived contradiction. It's not a contradiction. 
What he's saying here is that the best place to be is in the back of the line, in the submissive role, in the, in the, in the pouring out of yourself. And he models this type of behavior and this type of relationship in himself, inside the Trinity, as I showed you the first week. Each member of the Trinity pouring out themselves for the other, that it's so beautiful that it creates this thing called, it doesn't create this thing, it is this thing. It is, how do we talk about God? It is the triune God. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then he goes on, and I used to use this argument a lot. I would say that we need to stay away from... I'd hear someone give like a really deep message, and I would think, no... Paul would not like that. Paul liked the simple stuff. He did because he says here, brothers, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom. I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing will do you while I was with you except that uh, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in much weakness and fear and much trembling. We know, and we actually know from reading Paul that Paul got into some deep spiritual um, concepts. And when I say deep, I don't mean like, oh, we're so deep that we're sitting around understanding stuff that nobody else is going to understand. I'm talking about stuff that's deep in your soul that needs to be addressed, that we need to address inside ourselves. Paul addresses that in Romans 7, right? A whole passage about just warring with inside yourself of this dilemma that, man, I've got this inner man. I've got this, this, this battle going on inside me. Who will rescue me from this? And Paul addresses this, and he also addresses how in Romans 8. Holy Spirit, by the way. He says, I came to you in weakness and in fear, much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. And now we're getting to the crux of this whole, what I've, all this I've read. But with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Now I've read this verse a lot in my life about understanding that the God we serve, or Paul, who, who was an apostle of the God we serve, says, I didn't come to you with all, with all of this incredible stuff. I didn't have, it wasn't how I packaged it. He says, I came to you with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. That's, that's what I came to you with. And the reason why, he says, is because I did not want your faith to rest on the wisdom of men, but rather on the power of God. So the question is, what is he talking about when he says a demonstration of the Spirit's power? Now, to be honest, what's the first thing that pops in your mind? Huh? Miracle, right? Demonstration of the Spirit's power. I'm thinking Paul came in and put on a magic show. And everybody said, whoa, he can do stuff. That guy's he's, he's something special. I don't think that that's what Paul was talking about here. I don't think, now he may have performed miracles and that's up for debate, but I don't think based on the rest of the passage that that is what this means. I don't think he's talking about miracles that he was performing in front of people that was, get, that were, that was convincing them to give their life to Jesus. And this is why I think that. It says, we do, however, he says, we do have or speak a message of wisdom. So in other words, like we do talk about wisdom is what Paul's saying here. So we're not rejecting wisdom here. But it's a wisdom among the, among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age 
or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Now we speak of God's secret wisdom. So whatever this demonstration of the Spirit's power is, it's some kind of revelation of this secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Now, so what, there's, a, there's some type of wisdom that I don't know about that's a secret that the world doesn't understand. In fact, if they ever heard it, they would think it was stupid and foolish that somehow the Spirit's going to tell me about this and demonstrate it to me. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, I think this is going right back to what he said there before. It's foolishness to people to think about a suffering Savior. That's stupid. Why would God become man that, and, and, then, and then allow himself to be killed by his creation? Yeah, that's, that's about the dumbest thing I've ever heard. If you're of this world. It does seem foolishness. If they would have understood what was going on, if they had understood the paradox of the Christian faith, they wouldn't have killed Jesus. They would have submitted to him. But it was a secret wisdom. However it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. What does verse 10 say? But God revealed it to us through his Holy Spirit. Look, we talk about when we talk about the mind, anything, any knowledge that you receive, it comes via revelation. It comes via revelation. It's revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. No mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. Now, what does that mean? Is that heaven? Well, that's party. That's part of it. I said that's party. That's part of it. It's party too. But that's only part of it because it also reveals what we are in store for on this planet when we submit ourselves to Him. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. I came to you with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, He's saying. No one understood the secret wisdom of God, but the Holy Spirit, the one that's demonstrating it to you, has revealed it to us from God. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. So, so now, now, this totally contradicts what I thought he was saying at first. I thought he was saying we don't need to be deep. We need to keep it, keep it simple, and, and we do need to keep things simple. But I'm going to tell you something. My depravity... And the, the layers of lie in my, lies in my heart, they're not simple. They're layered. And as soon as I peel one layer back, as soon as the Holy Spirit peels the layer back and uncovers it, guess what I see? I see another layer. So what do I do? I allow him to penetrate that. And the Spirit searches all the things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him. A man's thoughts. Who knows a man's thoughts and if they match up the reality except the, except the spirit in him and the spirit of God teaching it to us. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit, capital S, of God. We have not received the little spirit of the world, but the big spirit who is from God. Why? That we may understand 
what God has freely given us. That's it. So you say, what is, why, why did God send me the Holy Spirit? Well, he wants me to know something. But who's going to tell me? The Holy Spirit's going to tell me. What's he going to tell me? He wants to tell me what God has freely given me and wants me to understand it. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by who? Taught by the Spirit. In words taught by the Spirit, expressed in spiritual truths and spiritual words. The man without the Spirit doesn't accept the things that come from the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. He can't understand them. Because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. So I'm going around here, and you're going around here with the Holy Spirit in you, and he's matching my thoughts up with reality by this thing called truth. And in doing that, I make judgments on all things because I'm a spiritual man, right? I should be. I should be making judgments on all things. And as I make these judgments on things, what am I judging? That's not true. That is. That's not true. That is. And to the extent that I submit and believe in the truth, to the extent that I experience this thing called sanctification, this thing called holiness, this thing called righteousness, and this thing called joy, the spiritual man makes judgments, but he's not under any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him. But we, and this is what the Holy Spirit's doing in this, but we have the mind of Christ. Now stay with me on this. Paul came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power that revealed to us that we have the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? I'm glad you asked. Knowledge. Huh? Knowledge. It is a knowledge, but what is, what is it? Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Your attitude, verse 5, should be like that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now that's, that's the mind of Christ. Why is it the mind of Christ? Because it's the understanding that fulfillment comes through sacrifice. This doesn't make sense to us in the world. Because we are trained from the almost from the womb, but when we get not from the womb, but when we become sinners, we enter in this corrupt world, and it starts. I mean, it is an, it is a survival of the fittest, right? It's a, it's all about self promotion, and we do this, and we do it in the church. We do it in, out of the church. I do it in my own walk with God. I use this is how ingrained in it. This is how ingrained in, in me it is in all of us. That's why I can say this with all confidence because you, you have the same problem I got. Right? I do good things, and a lot of times, you know why I do, why I do good things? Because I want to be seen. Because I want to be noticed. I want somebody to pat me on the back. I want people to think I'm something I'm not. I want people to think I'm great. 
Because I believe that if I can position myself, if I can, if I can just win, if I can just, if I'm not as bad as them, if I'm not, and, and we tell ourselves all these lies. And the more I do that, the more miserable I am. And I just get inside myself, and I just get detached, and I just get, and it's and it's a horrible place to be. But this idea of a suffering savior. Now, this is this is interesting. That this God did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped. What do you? What does that mean? You mean that in some way he's going to he's going to lessen himself? Uh, yeah. Well, how does that make any sense? How can he be fulfilled? Not only is he going to lessen himself, he's going to make himself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. So God humbles himself? Okay, this is getting ridiculous now. Oh, it gets worse. And became obedient to what? Death. He became obedient, and then not only did he become obedient, his job, why would he obey anything? And he died. Now this, this, is, this is tough to get. Even as I'm saying it, I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Like, how can you, how can you get more by giving everything you have away? How does that work? Going back to week one. Going back to week one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each pouring out themselves to one another 100%. A complete, perfect being, a relational God, each person with inside the triune God giving themselves to the other two beings or the other two people, the persons. Now that's pretty powerful because the question I would have is God fulfilled inside of himself? Absolutely. God doesn't, God's not insecure. He's not. God's not walking around with shame like I do. God's not searching for significance. Why? Because he's God. This is the paradox of Scripture, and this is the revelation of the mind that the Holy Spirit brings to us. And it will always be a fight between the mind of Christ and the, and the mind of this world. Turn to Matthew 22. What did Jesus say the greatest commandment of all the commandments that he gave, what did he say the greatest one was? Yeah. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Your heart would be like your, your, your will, your intentions, and your emotions. Now, when we've, in, Western, in Western Christianity, We've lost that. We, we usually translate the heart to mean the way you feel. That's part of it. But it's also your intentions, which I'm glad it is because I'm pretty wicked. But I do have good intentions. I do want to do right. I'm like Paul in Romans chapter 7. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your mind. So how do I do that? How do I love the Lord my God with all my mind? Because my mind is at war. I mean, it really is. I'm battling every single day against the schemes of the devil. And I'm being told things that aren't true, things that are, that are lies, that things that I'm, my, in my mind, my thought life, there's this battle to figure out, okay, is this real or is this some kind of pipe dream over here, this, this smoke and mirrors? And a lot of times I believe in the smoke and mirrors, and every time I do, guess what happens? Guess what follows? Pain. Pain follows. So there's this war going on, and I'm supposed to love my, my, my God with all of my mind. I'm supposed to get all this cleaned up. You say, well, how do I do it? Well, Romans chapter 8, turn there. I'm loving the Lord my God with all my mind. The correlation between the Holy Spirit and the mind. <coughs> Romans 8, 5 says that those who live according to the sinful nature, they have their what? Verse 5. Their minds set on what nature desires. Well, what does nature desire? Yeah. Pleasure. Please the self, right? Whatever it takes. Uh, Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The Selfish Gene about how the only reason why we do anything at all is because our genes are selfish and it's all about propagating one's DNA. It's a, and, and, and it's this idea that, and really I guess in some ways if there's no God, then that's true. All we are is just these selfish genes that are just whatever we got to do to survive and propagate our DNA. But... Those who live in accordance with the Spirit, the, the, the capital Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit, have their, what? Minds set on what the Spirit desires. So there's this war going on in my mind between nature, between nature and the Spirit. And by the way, nature is not nature is not bad. We, I don't, I'm not saying that. Nature is actually beautiful, and God made it, and everything that God made is good. But this is more of a pervert. This means more of a perverted fall, the per, the, the perverted form of how we see nature. Yeah, yeah, your sinful nature. It's not nature like in like the trees, and you know, it's 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 how it's perverted. How our nature has been perverted. So nature has a has a desire in me, and the spirit's producing a desire in me. My mind is in conjunction with the Holy Spirit is telling me to go this way because this is where fulfillment's at. And he's telling me, I have your best interest at heart if you'll just believe me and just trust me in this and you'll do what I'm telling you to do out of, out of trust, trust and obey, not, not begrudgingly obey, trust and obey. And as you trust me and as you obey me, your mind will be transformed because the mind that is controlled by the Spirit, or the, the ones who lives by the Spirit, we have our minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death. Now, I can testify to that because guess what? My mind has been controlled by the evil one in my lifetime, and it has been very painful, and it's produced death. Uh, not... 
necessarily physical death, but it does produce physical death, doesn't it? When I drove into that prison today, and I saw all the guys out there, and I didn't, and I was in Angola as well um, recently, and and I was every time I go into a prison, it's, you, you kind of you're seeing kind of the almost the end result of what happens when you're controlled by the sinful nature. And by the way, we're all capable of, of these types of crimes, given given to our own depravity. We're all capable of this. The end result is death. That's why prisons full of murderers. That's why there's an electric chair. That's why. That's why there's. That's why there's HIV. That's why there's all these things that kill us because it starts when we get outside of God's will. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. It's life and peace. This is what we're selling as Christians. If we're selling anything, this is what I would say we're selling. We're selling eternal life. Don't get me wrong there, because that's a big deal. That's kind of a big deal. <laughs> get to live forever. Don't want to downplay that, and that's probably a, even a bigger deal than this. But sometimes that's so far away that it's hard to grasp. You know what I mean? It's really hard to grasp. It's not that far away, really. It's a vapor of mist, but it seems to be a, a long time from now, at least for me. I'm like, man, I'm heaven. If I live to be 80 years old, 90 years old, I've got, I've got, wow. But we are selling life now on planet Earth and peace. A peace that surpasses all of understanding. The sinful mind, it's hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You can't please God if you're controlled by the sinful nature because you're living in hostility towards Him. What you're saying is, I don't believe you. You're a liar. You're not telling me the truth. You're holding out on me. You don't have my best interest at heart. I'm not going to confess that. You know what that would do? And then we start telling ourselves these lies. We're not going there. And we make a misery of ourselves. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. But those controlled by the sinful nature, they can't please God. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. The Spirit of God, if He lives in you. If anyone in you does not have the Spirit of God, or the Spirit of Christ, guess what it says here? He does not belong to Christ. That's pretty powerful. Because, you know, we don't have a... I think I said this the first week. If we downplay the Holy Spirit, it's the equivalent of downplaying Jesus. Because Jesus is essential for salvation, but so is the Holy Spirit. We can't act like he's not there. He is there, and he's active. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of the righteousness. Because of righteousness. Does it mean that is this righteousness is something that I've done? No. I haven't, I haven't achieved anything. I haven't been righteous. All I've done is that active passivity that Schaefer talks about in true spirituality. I'm just, I'm just <coughs> submitting and believing. <coughs> Excuse me. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who has raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. So, Turn to Romans 7 if you want. I'm going to read this as well. Romans 7, if we turn back, 
And Paul gives us this passage that I was talking about earlier, this war of the mind. I always have a hard time reading this because it has the word do in it so many times. He basically says, look, I want to do the right thing, but I can't do it. And every time I try to do it, sin pops up. And I try to do it. He said, it's just this thing going on here. He says, but I see another, Romans 7.23 says, but I see another law at work in me. 7.23. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Making me a prisoner. Romans, skip down three verses. Thanks be to God who delivers me. When he asks who will save me from this, he says, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. So we are to take our minds and our thoughts the Bible says take our thoughts, what? Captive. You catch your thoughts and you make them, what? Obedient to Christ. I take my thoughts and I make them obedient to Christ. Excuse me. Yeah. Which is, which if you think about that, is completely contrary to the way we sometimes present Christ, the Christian life as, as a set of rules to be obeyed. You know what I mean? Because he says, it's not, I didn't receive a spirit of uh, timidity that makes me a slave again to fear, but I received a spirit of sonship. And that really, the spirit is testifying with our spirit that we are sons of God. And, and if that's true, if that's what he's telling me, then what, he's, what does that mean if I'm a son of God? Well, the number, the number one thing it means is that he's got my best interest at heart. He's that for me. Like, he's, like he's, he wants me to succeed. He wants me to, be, he wants me to thrive, just like I want my daughter to thrive. I'm not going to tell her to do things that are going to hurt her. The things I tell her are because I want her to succeed. And so, yeah, that, that gives me victory over, over sin because what it tells me is that I don't, it's, it, this ain't some random arbitrary commandment of God. You know, these aren't arbitrary commandments. These make sense. So this laws at work within us, anyone, Romans 8, 27, who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. You hear me? The Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So the Spirit now is acting on my behalf, interceding for me, testifying that I am, I am a child of God. I am a son. I have a spirit of sonship. And then we skip over a few chapters in Romans eleven thirty four. It says, Who knows the mind of the Lord? Or who has been the counselor? And this is the verse that I was wanting to get to earlier that I, that I, I couldn't find. I said Hebrews 12. I'm embarrassed. I, sh- I should have known this. It's Romans 12. When we're going back to where I started about the woman at the well, the time has come when he wants you to worship him in truth and in spirit, right? 
That's the kind of that's the kind of worship of the Father wants. Someone who will worship the Father in, in spirit and in truth. And then we find out up here in, in Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, <coughs> holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So where does worship take place now? Jesus said it's not going to be on the mountain. Jesus said it's not going to be in Jerusalem. Now he wants spirit and truth. Now Paul says that offering our bodies as a living sacrifice is our spiritual act of worship. It's the response to grace. Here it is, verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of what? Of this world. What is the pattern of this world? Well, I know, huh? Darkness, death, selfishness. It's just self-consuming death. Don't conform to that anymore, he says. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By the renewal of your mind. Then, I mean, we, talked about, we talked about earlier about through the Spirit we make judgments. The spiritual man makes judgments on all things. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good and pleasing perfect will. In other words, I'll be able to test what His will is. I'm, what he's saying is, in the renewing of your mind, you're going to be able to say, that's not God's will. What is God's will? God's will is that I glorify Him because He knows that's where fulfillment comes from. And when I can see that's not glorifying God, that's not going to bring joy to me, I reject that, it's a lie, it's not going to bring fulfillment, who tells me that? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the active agent involved in the transforming of the mind. I'll tell you what, i got to take later the class, so let's take about a, about a 10 minute break, and we'll start back at, or about 15 minute break, we'll start back at 7.05. We're fixing to get into a little, take a little detour, not a detour, but we'll take a turn. Um, I've, I've really wanted to, tonight to show you the correlation between the mind and the spirit and that the spirit is, is revealing truths about reality or the, uh, to our minds. And, and our, our job or I guess our responsibility is to submit to that. Um, again, I use the word begrudging submission a term I stole from Matt Chandler. Um, it's not a begrudging submission. This is a trust factor. It's a I'm believing in, in the promises of God. Um, so also, if we go back just to the recap, when we talked about the Spirit's main purpose was to deliver us into all truth, okay? Um, when He comes, He will guide you into all truth. He's going to, and I've talked about truth being when thoughts match reality. So the, the Spirit's main role is to reveal truth to my mind so that I can attain the knowledge of God and understand the secret wisdoms of God. That's the purpose. That's what he's doing in my life. And that's what he's calling the believers to submit to him so that we can get a greater measure of that. Um, so turn to 1 Corinthians 14, and I'm going to just read a couple more things about the mind, and then we're going we're gonna to change course and talk about when we reject this knowledge, when we reject this revelation. Romans 14, verse 13 through 17 says, For this reason the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret 
what they say. For if I pray in First uh, Corinthians fourteen. For if I pray in a tongue, that my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I shall pray with my spirit. So this, this, it's about being the mind being fruitful. So I pray with my spirit, but I also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else say, who is now, who is now put in a position of, of inquiry, say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you're saying? You're giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. So what's, what's his point here? What is Paul's point and when he gives us this, these rules for speaking in tongues and things? His point is, is that this should mean something, right? When we're doing this, it should bring some type of meaning. If it doesn't bring meaning, then it's no good. It's like what? A clanging cymbal. Now this is important because we see in a lot of, a lot of church cultures that, that there is a move away from this gospel of meaning. And the word I used last week, did I use the word existentialism? Um, Schaefer talks about that word. I know I use epistemology. There's a, there's a move towards existentialism, which is uh, existentialism is the quest for the final experience. Uh, Buddhism is kind of promotes this a lot. Unfortunately, inside of the, of the Christian faith and Western Christianity, there is a great deal of, of this ideology or this worldview that has crept in. And we're focusing so much on this experience. Got to have this experience with the Lord. Got to have my experience. And we can go into our Sunday morning services and we can experience God, right? And you know, when I say experience, you know what I'm talking about? An experience that can't be explained almost. And, and you leave and you go back out to the world and then it's gone. But what do you do? You go back and what do you do? You get your, you get your experience. It's almost like a battery, right? You get charged, you get your battery charged, and then you leave. And, and you're, when you're out in the world, what's happening to your battery? It's getting run down, right? So what do you got to do? You got to go back to the church, the church building, and get your battery charged, get your experience. And we, we promote this experiential Christianity, this experiential worship, and then we, we leave or drain. Now what does that sound like? Sounds like work, a lot of work, right? It sounds like that woman that we just talked about at the well. She goes to the well, she gets her water. It's a lot of work. She carries it home. She's good, though. She's got her full bucket of water now. But throughout the week, she's drinking that water. She's washing them dishes. She's taking that bath. She looks down there and she's like, oh, uh, uh, where's my water? So she goes back to the church, oh, excuse me, the well, and gets her water. Right? She gets her experience, and then she goes, and she goes back out to the world, and there's this process, and she keeps having to come back. And Jesus says, no, 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 you, ain't, you don't understand what we're talking about. There's a time coming. You're not going to worship the Father on that mountain or Jerusalem. You're not going to have to keep going back to the same place to do your little deal, get your, your batteries charged, do your little act of penance, do all your stuff. That's done. He said, there's a time coming when you worship the Father in spirit and truth. I'll give you a drink of water that if you drink it, you'll never be thirsty again. You're going to leave this well and you're going to walk around and this is just going to be boiling up inside you and spewing out all out your ears, out your mouth. You're just going to be a walking spring. That's the, you know what he's talking about there? 
The Holy Spirit. How do we worship? The same thing. So, so we're, we're, in our culture, we're moving, we're moving towards that experiential worship. And I'm not saying experiencing God is a bad thing. I, love, I mean, there's moments when I just pour out to the Lord. There's moments when I'm just weeping with joy or pain or sorrow or repentance. Amen? And by the way, I said last week, sanctification is painful. It is. And sometimes you weep. Sometimes you mourn. Sometimes you rejoice. Sometimes you have those moments, but they're meaningful. They mean something. And so the way my litmus test that I use for any type of experiential worship, anything where, where we're moving to, to enhance the experience, I'm saying, is it bringing meaning? Is it bringing understanding? Because if it's not, guess what? Paul says, don't do it. Speaking in tongues, should we do it? Does it bring meaning? Do you have an interpreter? Is that, if, if you don't, don't do it. Because you're just making, you're not, you're, you're, not, you're not doing it in understanding. You're clanging symbols, he says in the, in the later passage. So the, and, he, and the whole thing there he's talking about is the mind. Another, as, another aspect of, of this, how our mind is in conjunction with the Spirit and how our mind's at war, Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Y'all turn there with me. Now this is not an all or none thing. What I'm fixing to read to you, this is half of the coin when we talk about uh, why we are enemies. Like why, why are you an enemy to Christ? And uh, and, and this is and I, when I say an enemy, I'm talking about before I mean uh, before you obey the gospel, before you become a Christian. Colossians chapter one says, "Once you were alienated from God, and were enemies where in your mind because of your evil behavior." Now, when we talk about the gospel, and we talk about uh, we were kind of getting to a little bit of this a while ago <coughs> in a side discussion. Um, the role, the, one of the reasons why God sent His Son to die for us is because God is just. Okay? God is just. I mean, this is, He can't be, God cannot be unjust. He can't be unjust. He is just. Always. It's not uh, in his nature to violate this. He can't, it's just like water can't be um, Sprite. Huh? What'd you say? Yeah, water can't be unwet. That's, that's even a better analogy. Water can't be unwet. Unless it's ice. <laughs> but it's not water, it's ice. But, but God can't be unjust. It's impossible. The Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. So he is just. Now, <coughs> If God is just, He is also good. God is good. God cannot be bad. If if I broke into your house, I don't know, I may have told you this story before, or this analogy, if I, if I did, sorry. If I broke into your house, and you were sleeping at night, you and your family, and I killed your entire family, and you saw this happen, and I spared your life, but I killed your entire, brutally murdered your family, and you had it on surveillance film, and we go before the judge, and you're sitting in, in the courtroom, and, and I walk in, 
and they're what you know, you guys are waiting for me to walk in. You're all there. You're just devastated. I mean, I, this, I've just done this horrible crime, but you're finally going to get justice for what I did to your family. And I walk in that door, and then the door swing open, and my head's down like this, right? Because I know I'm fixing to go to the electric chair. I, it's over for me. You got me on video. It's the done deal. And, I, and when I lift my head up, and I see that judge. He looks at me, and he said, he gets out of the bench and says, Zach Dasher, what are you doing? And comes up and hugs me, and we're laughing. And I said, oh, what are you doing? How's your mom? And, and we're old friends. He says, man, this is, the, the, he goes, that case just missed. I've known this guy for years. He's a black king. I can't send him to prison. What would you think about that judge? Huh? Would you think he's good? No. Why? That would be Huh? Yeah, I would think he's. I, no, I would still think he's a bad dude. I, 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 he'd be my bad dude. He'd be my bad friend, but I would not think he was just. I would think he was a bad guy. I'd say he's a bad guy. He's not good because he's unjust, right? There's something in you that demands justice, right? When when Osama bin Laden got got killed, was there something inside you that was kind of like they got him, right? Or when they got those two bombers that did the the, the Boston Marathon, when they caught that that last one, I was like. They got him. When they caught uh, Saddam Hussein and he's living in a hole in the ground, I thought, they got him. Right? Because there's something in us that cries out for justice. It's one of the ways we're made like God. So God is just. And then one of the reasons why he sent his son Jesus was there had to be a payment. There had to be a payment. There was no other way. There had to be a payment for your sin, for my sin. Because... If God's going to be good and God's going to be just and I've violated, I've murdered your family, God says that has to be paid for, but you can't pay that debt because it's against an infinite God and the only payment that could satisfy the scales of justice is going to be an infinite payment. If the crime is an infinite worth, the payment's got to be infinite to balance the scales of justice out and the only thing that meets that criteria is Jesus Christ, his son. So God sends his son to become a human to die for us. And so that's one of the reasons. But another reason that he sent his son to die for us was because we were also, not only were we enemies to God, but this, and, and, and because we, were, we, were, we, were, we had violated the commandment, we were also, according to Colossians chapter 1, enemies in our minds because of evil behavior. But he has now reconciled you by Jesus Christ, by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation if you continue in your faith established uh, and, and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, but it's proclaimed, by the way, by the Spirit, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So we think, well, what is the role of the Spirit in the transforming of the mind? This, and the reason why I spent so much time on this little verse here is because this is a big deal. Look, the Spirit convicts me of my sin and says, Zach, you need to repent and you need to turn yourself in to Jesus. And I did that. He continues to convict me of my sin and says, you need to repent and confess your sin so that you may be healed. And I continue to do that. And you notice that I kind of stop there because that's hard to do sometimes. 
And it may take me a while to get there on specific sins, but God brings me to that place. And it's painful. Oh, it's painful. But he also says, you're not accused. Because you know what? You know one of the reasons why I don't confess my sins sometimes? It's because there's another evil force out there that accuses me. In fact, they call him the accuser. You know what he tells me? You're an enemy with God. You're an enemy. He doesn't love you. Look at what you've done. Look at what's in your heart. Look at the thoughts that you've had. Look at look at how look at how selfish you are. And he just and he just heaps it on me. <laughs> and I'm gonna tell you something. So, does anyone else have that struggle in your life? Have you ever had, huh? And I, and I love to hear someone like you say that because I would just think that you are just the perfect person. So that I, I feel comfort in knowing that he's lying to you too. It <laughs> makes me feel good. I'm, I'm enjoying your pain a little bit, but it, you know. <laughs> Well, thank you. The Spirit comes back and says, No, you're not accused. You're, not, you're free. You are an enemy in your, in your mind. He said, But no, no, I'm transforming the mind. You are forgiven. Now, that's powerful because there's a lot of spiritual stagnation that is a result of our believing in the accusations of the evil one heaping shame on us and it paralyzes us and we're just like, is this real? Is this real? I think that sometimes. I still think that sometimes. Is, is, is there anything that's real? Am I just pretending to this? Am I just pretending like I'm healed because I want to feel better about myself? That's the devil. But the Spirit's saying, no, it's real. It's real. You're not accused. You're not accused. You're not accused. The battle of the mind, the war of the mind. So when we go over here, the next chapter in Colossians chapter 2 we see this example of what an unspiritual mind looks like and this is like really in Colossians 2:18 this is this is a a so whatever's going on here I mean these people seem to be religious but Paul says or the Colossian writer says that don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day, verse 17, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, going back to our, what is, what is, what is truth? When thought matches what? Reality. So he's saying here, the reality, however, is found in Christ. It's not found in, these, in, 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 in observing these legalistic traditions. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualifies you for the prize. Now, what does that mean? False humility, the worship of angels. I believe that this is a, what he's talking about here is a, is a, is a hybrid of some form of legalism because they were binding these, these uh, celebration meals on these people, but also they were into this, that experiential worship I was talking about earlier that, that was devoid of meaning, and they're worshiping angels. Why is that false humility? We can take religion and we can, we can act like we're really humble when really it's self-imposed worship. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's like, man, look, I'm, I'm just humble me. You know, just experiencing the Lord. You'll get there. Oh, you'll get there. You know, and, you, and we patronize you. You'll get there. You'll, you just don't have to. 
You just don't get it yet. And we can patronize people. But this, such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. So they're given all these elaborate stories about their experience with these angels. And his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. So here's, a, again, a battle of the mind. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body is supported and held together by its ligaments and sinoins grows as God causes it to grow. He says, therefore, he says, since you die with Christ at the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commandments and teachings. Now remember going back to that whole uh, passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 where it talked about the human wisdom. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship. Look at what I've done. See, where I started this whole night, elevation of self, this is what we're fighting against, the elevation of self. If I can somehow elevate myself and everyone thinks I'm awesome, then somehow I'll get fulfillment out of that. That's not the gospel. It's the appearance of wisdom with that self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. Why is their treatment of the body harsh when you act this way? when your self-imposed worship is, is upon you. It's because what you're, you're, by elevating yourself, you have to, sometimes you can't get up higher, so you, what you have to do push everybody else down. You treat people horrible. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The Spirit intercedes in this. The Spirit is calling us to not get into this type of thinking. And in Colossians 3, 2, he, uh, Colossians chapter 3, Right after this, he follows up by saying, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And verse 2 says, Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. Here's the secret. Here's the mystery. When Christ is in your life, who is in your life appears then you also appear with Him in glory. The mind is what the Spirit is trying to sanctify. Hebrews 8.10 says, This is the covenant I will establish with my people of Israel. After the time declares, Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their heart and I will be their God. Hebrews 10.16 says, This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their heart and I will write them on their minds. The mind... And the battle of the mind is really where the spiritual, uh, where the spiritual battles occur. If that's true, then we can simplify it with two words. We can simplify the spiritual battle in the mind with two words. Truth and lie. He said, Zach, just how do I live holy? You need to look at it like that right there. That's it. Truth and lie. The Spirit will guide you into all truth. And the Father of lies will guide you in all lies. Turn to John 8.
John 8, 31 through 47. To the Jews who believed in Jesus said, If you hold to my teachings, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth. It's this word again. My goodness, it keeps coming up over and over again. And the truth, what's it going to do? Set you free. You know that verse in that psalm, my favorite, one of my favorite songs, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Why is there freedom where the Spirit of the Lord is? By what? Because what are we in bondage to? A lie. He's accusing me. Is that true? No. If I believe that's true, am I in bondage? Yeah. But when I realize it's a lie, am I free? I'm free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. They answer them, We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? See the arrogance here of the, of the, of the Jews? Jesus replied, very, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. Now, where have we heard that before, about the son stuff? Ryan mentioned it earlier. Romans 8, 1 Timothy, right? We receive the spirit of sonship, and the spirit testifies with our spirit that we're sons of God. So I want you to see how all this <coughs> is really a fight between the truth and the lie, between the Holy Spirit and the devil himself. We receive the spirit of sonship. We are part of the family. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, that you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room, in your, no, no room for my word. I'm telling you what I've seen in my Father's presence, and you are doing what you've heard from your Father. Now, this is how you get in trouble with a Pharisee, by the way. <laughs> Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man that has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. And they're really angry at this point. Because they're saying, we are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, so you can say God's your father. That don't mean nothing. You know what I'm saying? Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? It's because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. Now that's how you make a mad right there. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. How does Satan get where he's at? Not holding to the truth. For there is, there is no truth in him. Which, which honestly <coughs> answers one of the questions that I've always had. Which is, why would Satan be so naive as to believe that he could actually stop God, right? You ever thought that? Like, why would he kill Jesus? I mean, he knows he's going to lose in the end, right? I don't think he knows. 
I don't think that he knows. Why does he not know? Because there's no truth in him. He believes his own lies. He is the father of all lies. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet I tell, because I'm telling you the truth, you don't believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason that you don't hear is that you do not belong to God. Satan is the father of all lies. Everything that he says is a lie. Every last thing. He doesn't speak truth. It's not in him. On the other side, the Holy Spirit is guiding us into all truth. And the opposite of Satan, he, everything that he tells us is the truth. So the Bible says in James that each one is dragged away and enticed by their own evil desires. So we do have some responsibility in this. It's not, we can't blame everything on the devil. But I do believe that the lies originate right here. And when I see things like this, if I can start to begin to understand, and when I have, I have Holy Spirit on this side, Satan on this side, I don't mean to say that they're any clo anywhere close to equal. The Holy Spirit is God. Satan is a created being, okay, who, became, who believed in a lie about himself that he was greater than what he really was. And the rest of his whole existence is murder and death. So here we are, battling it out in the mind. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says this, It tells us to be alert and of sober mind, because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's pretty scary, right? So what tool are we told in First Peter to use? Our minds be of sober mind as opposed to what would be the other, what would be the opposite of sober? Drunk, which doesn't have to, that don't just mean on whiskey. You ever known someone? You ever seen someone get so angry that they're not in their right mind? Look, sober mind. What he's saying here is use your God-given rational faculties to decipher what's truth and what's a lie. Have a sober mind. Have a sober mind and realize that the devil himself is out prowling around seeking whom he may devour. The end of all things is near, 1 Peter 4, 7. It says, therefore be alert and of sober mind that you may pray. And I think this verse about prayer and about being alert and being of a sober mind so that we can pray, I think that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, I want you to be, I want you to be aware. I want you to experience life. Because the end is near. But there are those out there who, including ourselves sometimes, and this is why we have to be alert, because there's a rebellion going on, and there has been since the creation, or I should say since the fall of man. Titus chapter 1, verse 10 
through 16 says, There are many rebellious people full of (coughs) meaningless talk and deception. God is a God of meaning. If there's anything that I want you to get out of this whole series is that God is a God of meaning and the Holy Spirit is bringing meaning and understanding to our lives. And the opposite of meaning is meaninglessness. And he's saying there are people out there, these rebellious people, who are full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things that they ought not to teach. And they're doing it for the sake of dishonest gain. One of, a, one of a Crete's own prophets has said it best when he said Cretans, or the, Cretan, the Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Sometimes you get these people who write the Bible, they get, a little, they get a little blunt, don't they? This saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be in sound faith. And, and will pay no attention to the Jewish, Jewish myths or to merely human commands, going back to that First Corinthians passage about human wisdom, and of those who reject the truth. Run from them. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds... and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God. This is about knowledge, gaining the knowledge, understanding the meaning of God. They claim to know God, but their actions deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. In 1 Timothy 6.5, it says, uh, constant friction between people of corrupt mind constant friction of people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means of financial gain. Now think about this. You you start rejecting truth and your mind will be in constant friction. I believe it's one of the main reasons why we have such an epidemic of anxiety in this country because it's our rejection of truth. They have been robbed of truth because they think that godliness is a means of financial gain. Second Timothy chapter three verse eight says, "Just as as uh, Janus and, and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose truth. They are men of depraved." You notice the word "truth" and "mind" keeps going hand in hand. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as faith is concerned, are rejected. In Philippians chapter three verse nineteen says, "Their destiny." is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. You know why? Because their mind is set on earthly things. Their mind is set on earthly things. The lie. You're going to be... You know know what that means when you say your mind is set on earthly things? If my mind is set on them... What, what he's saying is is that, that you're saying this is your source for fulfillment. That's what that means. I can't, huh? Yeah. But somebody said at one time, uh, a great poet, poet said that I can't get no satisfaction. Right? That's true. Ain't it? Was it the Rolling Stones that said that? You can't get satisfaction on planet Earth. 
not from the things that are here. It's impossible. Because just like that woman who kept having to come back to the well to get the water because she kept getting thirsty, anything that you consume on planet Earth is a consumable. You'll have to get more of it. I don't care what it is, you're going to have to get more of it. But what Jesus has offered us through the sending of his Holy Spirit is something, a spring within inside of us welling up to eternal life. But we have to not reject him. We have to renew our minds, the transforming and the renewal of our minds. 2 Corinthians 3, 4, 14 says, But their minds were made dull. Their minds were made dull. For to us this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read has not been renewed because only in Christ is it taken away. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says that the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. <coughs> in 2 Corinthians 5, 13, it says, if we were out of our minds, um, no, skip that one. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen 13, um, it says, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray for your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Ephesians 4.23 uh, says that we are to be made new in the attitude of, of, of your minds. Philippians 2.2 2 says that uh, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same joy, being in one spirit and of one mind. Philippians 4.2 uh, says uh, it's the same thing, being of the same mind of the Lord. Philippians 4.7 and, the, and the, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind in Jesus Christ. Be holy, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on grace and be brought uh, and be brought to you in Jesus. Oh, excuse me. Uh, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ has revealed it is coming. In First Peter four seven, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert, alert, sober, and a sober mind, so that you may pray. I think I already read that. And lastly, I want you to turn to Romans chapter one. I know I just kind of sped through a lot of those verses there. But I want to end with this. Because there is a, a danger, a danger here, even post-Christianity. This is, I guess, up for debate. I think that I'm 100% correct on what I'm going to tell you, but you know, I know that different churches teach different things. Um, I do believe that the scripture teaches you can lose your salvation. Uh, I, I believe that it says that in, in Hebrews when it talks about it's impossible, you know, once you reject truth, basically, to come back to repentance. It, it talks about it in, 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 uh, in Peter when it says it's like a dog returning to its vomit. Um, but I don't believe that there's a level of sin that you can commit once you're a Christian where God says that's too much. Okay, now hear what I'm saying here. I don't believe you can commit too many sins where God will kick you out. But I do believe that you can lose your salvation. But that's of your own doing. It's of your own doing. You can get to a place where you reject it. And you will. Okay? And I'm going to tell you why I know that. Because if I continue to believe the lie, okay, eventually I'm not going to believe the promises of God anymore and I will kick the Holy Spirit out of my life. 
scripture is very clear that this is possible to do. You say, well, that changes a lot about how I view holiness. Because the danger of sin post-Christianity, it's not that I'm going to sin too many times and God's going to kick me out. That's not it. That would be some type of legalism. We're not justified by works. Okay? The danger of sin post-Christianity, post-acceptance of Jesus, is that you become a believer in a lie every time you do it. Because when you're sinning, what you're essentially doing is you're essentially saying, God, you're lying to me about reality. You're not telling me the truth. So I do it, and if I continue to do that, and I don't repent, I don't confess it, it festers inside me, I start doing it more and more and more and more and more, I keep believing this lie, eventually I can give myself over to a complete lie. And that's what I'm following. What does it look like when we totally reject truth? Well, the wrath of God in verse 18 of chapter 1 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Well, how's that happening? Well, I guarantee you he's got something to do with it. Since what may be known to their minds about God is plain to them because God made it plain to them since the creation of the world, his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they, they knew God, their mind, their minds, they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking, their thinking life, the way they, their thoughts became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, remember that wisdom of the world Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that he said was foolishness? Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Same thing Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God. So I've got the immortal God in all of his splendor and glory and I exchanged that for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. Now, when I start elevating the creation to the level of the creator, there's a word for that. It's called idolatry. And it's also called a lie. That's, I mean, that's, just, that's, that's just not truth. These are created things. They obviously aren't the thing that made it. You know what I'm saying? They're the things that are made. Therefore... Because the men did this, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged, here's the sin, here's the problem, here's the danger. They exchanged the truth of God for this over here, for the lie. And they worshipped and served the created things rather than the creator. Now, that's stupid. Why would, you, why would you worship the created things? Well, because you're under the power of a lie, of the delusion, who is forever praised, the creator is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. So now we're getting outside of nature even. And we're like, now we're getting into like perversions. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and we're inflamed with lust for one another. So now we're inventing ways of doing evil. 
or inventing ways of experiencing sexual pleasure or saying, even though all of nature says that does not work together, we're saying, no, we're going to make it work because we're believing in a lie. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge, which is carried in your mind, they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. So this mind just got, oh, it just, we just cross all this out. Hey, that's gone. And now it's just, it's this drunk, just perverse, twisted mind. God says, you have abandoned the truth. You don't even have a desire for it anymore. You're like them Pharisees that Jesus was performing miracles in front of for crying out loud. They're like, nah, not enough. That's from the devil. Just total rejection of truth. So he turns them over to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that list, I think I wouldn't want to hang out with those people. And if I did hang out with those people, I definitely would not want to leave my wallet on the table unattended. And I definitely would not want to turn my back. I wouldn't want to take a nap with them in the room. I don't trust these people. Whoever those people, those people will hurt you. So how do you get to that level? You reject the truth. You just scratch all that off. You give yourself over to humanism. And the next thing you know, death reigns. But, I can't end on that, right? <laughs> that would be depressing. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 5. Another list I won't go through, but it's the same stuff in Romans. Basically, look, it's orgies, sexual morality, debauchery, witchcraft, the whole, I mean, just just like stuff you don't want to be around. God, uh, Paul says, if, if you live like this, he says, I warn you, as I did before, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. But, but the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of my works, not the fruit of Zach Dasher. The fruit of the Spirit is love. This is, this is the byproduct of submission to the Holy Spirit. You don't love. You submit, and this is what's produced. Love. Now, I like this. I could probably leave my wallet around these people. 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the simple nature with its passions and its desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Amen. You want to know, like, hey, so, hey, what do I got? What can I, like, what, what do I get out of this Holy Spirit thing? What do I get when I, when I, instead of doing this, when I cross off this side and I start submitting to the Holy Spirit who's delivering me in the, me in the truth? Love. I can love my wife to the extent that I submit to the Spirit. Think about that. I can love you to the extent that I submit my life to the Holy Spirit. I can experience peace in my life to the extent that I'm submitting to the Holy Spirit. I can experience joy. Now, this is something we all want, right? I can experience joy in my life to the extent that I submit to the Spirit. This is the good life, if I'm being honest with you. This is what the good life is all about. It's not about... It can't, and, and, and logically, it, can, it can't be about what the world says it's about. The world says it's about being 25 years old and, and having a great physique and getting to go to Vegas and go to all the best clubs in the, in, in, in the country. But I ain't 25 forever. Surely that's not all there is. Surely that's not what life is about. That ain't not what life's about. Life. It's about my 82-year-old grandfather who's married to my 82-year-old grandmother and they still go on dates every week. They go to bed about 9 o'clock at night. They're not out at the clubs. They're not going to Vegas and doing all that. They don't do that. But they're happy. They're joyful. And my grandmother, you know one of her favorite things to do is to go out in her garden and she will plant plants every year, uh, different plants every year. She's always got this incredible flower bed, and she loves to do that. Hey, 25 years old, guess what? That probably ain't going to be appealing to most 25-year-olds. But see, we're in a culture now that we have 60-year-olds trying to hang on to 25-year-old mentality, and they can't experience any joy in their life because they can't even age. They can't even, age is a bad thing, right? Well, guess what, folks? We're aging. I want to enjoy it. I want to enjoy the things of this world that God's given us by giving glory to Him. And this is the kind of life that I think my, my grandparents, you know, they, they lived a spirit-filled life. And, and, and this is what I think the Bible teaches when it talks about being spirit-filled. It's about being, living a truthful life, being a lover of truth. This is where the hope comes from. I told a guy today, he's an atheist. He's in prison. He's looking at some serious charges. I said, you still an atheist? He said, yep, I still am, Zach. I said, uh, you know what I would do if I was you? I said, I would pray to God. I said, have you prayed? He said, no, I haven't prayed. I said, you've been here for three months and you haven't said a prayer yet? He said, I have not said a prayer yet. I said, that's just stubborn. I said, I know you wanted to. He said, and he didn't answer that question.
I said, let me tell you about me. I said a prayer eight years ago that basically said, God, if you're there, which I doubt, I need to know. I said, be honest with him. I said, but I think you need to ask yourself a question before you ask God that question. He said, what's that? I said, if God is there, would you want to know? And he didn't answer me. I don't know what his answer is. Because some people, they don't want the truth. But I'm telling you, if you do want it and you seek it, you'll find it. If you find it, it'll set you free. Not my words, Jesus' words. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you so much for all that you have done in our lives to sanctify us, Lord. We thank you for sending us your son Jesus and for sending us the Holy Spirit, God, (coughs) to deliver us into all truth. Be with us this week, Father. Help us to find you more every day and to give glory to you. We love you. Give us joy. Give us peace. Give us love and all those fruits of the Spirit, God. We give our life to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation by Whitesbury Road Church. For more information, please visit wfrchurch.org.